are listening to a Hive Talk Live Stinger. Buzz Buzz. Welcome in, Hornets fans, to another Hive Talk Live Stinger here on HiveTalkLive.com. I'm Doug Branson. I am continuing to bug my friends to come into the studio and talk Hornets with me. That continues today with Adi Joseph from SportingNews.com. Adi covers the NBA for Sporting News. He also uh, was around the team a lot Last season, wrote some great stuff on Frank Kaminsky, Al Jefferson, and more. We talk a lot about the future of the Hornets in this interview, and I know that's what you are really interested in, but we also recap the season that was. It was an exciting season for Hornets fans as this organization got back to the playoffs and got back on track. It certainly did not end the way a lot of us wanted it to end. There was opportunity to be had for the Hornets in this playoffs and, uh, you know, that's disappointing, obviously, but the future is very bright for this franchise. But there are a lot of question marks here in free agency. And we talk about Al Jefferson. We talk about Nick Batum. We talk about Jeremy Lin. And if you haven't listened to my interview with Adam Chen from BaselineBuzz.com, you should definitely go back and listen to that. We've got a lot more of this type of content coming to you this uh, spring and summer, and we're also going to be doing some fantastic things with video. So buckle in, Hornets talk for the hardcore fan. I know the season is out, but we've got a lot more to come. Thanks for listening. Without further ado, let's get to Adi Joseph from SportingNews.com. Very few teams can simply point to their weaknesses and then fix them. It's a huge credit to um, Rich and, and and Steve and Michael Jordan and the organization as a whole. Um, a lot of times it requires a coaching change, and that's the that's another thing. You know, a lot of teams have pointed to weaknesses and said, okay, we'll hire a coach. Well, we saw what happened when the Pelicans and Bulls did that this year. And Memphis seems to be doing that with Jaeger. Right. Now Memphis is doing that with Jaeger, and, and we'll see if they – I would not be surprised at all if they do exactly what the Pelicans and Bulls did and they take a big step backward because – they're trying to change. The the Pacers might do the same, you know. For the Hornets to do it without a coaching change, without changing their best player, like adding a star, um, you know, that that was pretty remarkable and, and rare. And I think what some people may not realize is that and I, and I saw this in a couple of, of articles talking about the team's transformation and, and this idea that you know, Steve Clifford has changed the way that he coaches uh, basketball to include all of this three-point shooting, but that's not necessarily the case. His, if you look at his uh, history as as an assistant coach, it was based in this four-out, one-in offense, whether it was in Orlando or Houston or uh, Los Angeles, or maybe not so much Los Angeles, but but he's been there before, and and I think he people underestimate. Uh, his willingness to, to accept the, this new three-point uh, shooting system that we're all living under now. Yeah, I think you know the Van Gundys. All of that, both of both Van Gundy brothers and all of their assistants have a reputation for being defensive-minded and um, anti-analytics, which is bogus in a lot of ways. I mean, just watch Stan Van Gundy's teams. The guy, I mean, r- r- sliding Richard Lewis to the four. Was, one, was a major moment in the NBA and succeeding and making the finals with that lineup. It basically said, if you have the right center, you don't need a power forward. And we'll look around. 
it, it, it bared out over the next seven years. Um, so Stan had had a big role. Uh, you know, a lot of people would give him credit, and, and Steve was an assistant on that team. Uh, the Rockets, while while under Jeff Van Gundy, maybe they weren't playing Maury ball like they do now, but they were a very fluid modern team. <laughs> you know, they had a lot of skilled players surrounding Yao, and they based their offense on get the ball in and then pop it back out. And that was, you know, a huge part of what they did. So we've seen Steve Clifford surrounded by several very brilliant coaches. We've seen him adapt to various things. And um, this isn't new. Like you said, the turnover thing is the big, the, the number one tenet of Steve Clifford's philosophy is don't turn the ball over, without a doubt. And his teams always are amazing at not turning the ball over. Eric Spolstra sounded like he was going crazy trying to turn the Hornets over because they, for some reason, entered the series thinking, well, if we can force a few more, few extra turnovers, we'll win this series easily. And realized, you know, the Hornets were turning the ball over like eight times a game in that series. So that's just what Steve Clifford does. His teams are always good at not turning the ball over, playing smart. The biggest difference here was just that they made their shots. When you look back at all of the offseason moves in respect to style and strategy from acquiring Spencer Hawes, uh, Jeremy Lamb, Jeremy Lin, drafting Frank Kaminsky, letting not only bringing guys in, but letting guys like uh, Bismack Biombo walk, is there one move to you that really stands out and says, yes, they were, they were trying to modernize this team? Sliding Cody DeZeller to center is uh, probably the most underrated move of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think the only acquisition that was a bigger deal was Batum, and uh, with in terms of how they played, in terms of the structure of how they played, like Jeremy Lin had a very big impact, but ultimately he was playing a role that made sense in any lineup. Sliding Cody to, to center was the move that signified their shift, and that was because Cody wasn't working as a power forward. They wanted him to shoot, but he had a shoulder injury all off season. Couldn't really work on his shot. Never got his three-pointer in, in a place that he could rely on it. And they wanted to shift four out. They make Cody a center. And essentially all he starts doing is just setting screens and throwing his body around and running at the rim. And it was uh, extremely effective. I mean, obviously he's he's not the rim runner that DeAndre Jordan is. But he kind of made his living off of those little... Um, you know, flip passes to him, and 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 when when he when he needed to score, he would like throw up a crazy looking layup and probably fall to the ground afterward. And or getting uh, running head start and dunk the ball. Yeah. yeah, and and Cody is athletic enough to do that, and he's he's very fast actually. Um, and that move and taking him and Al off the court at the same time is what opened up the floor. Adding Spencer Hawes and Frank Kaminsky alongside Marvin Williams. As the, uh, as the power forwards um, or the guys who play with Cody and, and Al was a big part of that because they can all shoot. And, um, you know, that's, that's ultimately, I think, what opened up the floor and, and set up the four-out system. And it's interesting because you just said, you know, that Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy ran this system in Orlando with Steve Clifford that said, you know, if you have the right center, you don't need a power forward. It's kind of the opposite that happened in Charlotte this season because – it, it, they had 
Marvin Williams, who had a career year at power forward, and he seemed to be the exact right power forward for that situation, and it allowed Cody Zeller to learn the center job sort of on the job and get adjusted to that new role and eventually uh, somewhat thrive in that new role. Uh, But Marvin's ascension certainly had uh, a big effect on the way they approached their style and strategy for this season. Would you would you agree? Yeah, and I think one of the questions of this offseason is, is Cody Zeller the right center? Mm-hmm. And they, they um, I asked Rich Cho directly, do you think that Cody Zeller is your starting center for next season? You know, he mentioned he wanted a rim protector, and he was kind of vague on what that meant. So my thought was an upgrade on Cody would, would make a lot of sense for this team. You know, if, if they could get Hassan Whiteside or Dwight Howard for the right price, if they could even get Ian Mahinmi or... At a really low price, Roy Hibbert maybe coming off the bench, uh, but they were pretty steadfast. Cody Zeller's the right center, and and uh, an off season where Zeller can actually prepare to be a center could do him really well. Um, they're still working on his shooting, yes, but I would think that they're going to try to teach him ways to be a better rim protector. I would I would assume that that's a part of the strategy if they still see him as the starting center of the future because. Cody doesn't have a lot of experience in that role. So the real step now, to me, I mean, if I'm looking at the roster and they can bring back everyone, I still say they're not quite where they would like to be at center. And we saw that when Whiteside dominated them. And um, that's that's the next step for Cody. But Marvin being a Marvin having a career year both in rebounding and shot blocking was absolutely enormous to what worked last season. And you know what's interesting with Cody Zeller? I listened to the exit interviews from both Zeller and Clifford, and not that they're not on the same page about whether where the development needs to be, but it seems the focus is different. With when you ask Cody, he seems to be interested in adding strength and bulk, and then when you ask Clifford, he still seems to be focused on Cody Zeller adding a three point shot. Uh, something that I think that Cody has been a little. Uh, hot and cold on whether whether or not he needed that shot to be successful in the NBA and I just wonder just moving forward them not really being completely in line on what that development needs to be this offseason will affect whether or not they go out and and get somebody right and I actually um, I believe it was Russell Varner who wrote an article on uh, at the hive base actually no it wasn't Russell I don't remember who it was um, someone wrote an article on At The Hive about Cody basically being portrayed as a stretch for mostly because he's white, mm. um, which is funny and probably partially true because that's kind of been in his scouting reports since he was at Indiana, even though you know his biggest thing is his athleticism. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not particularly skilled. We've seen that where he's, he's too far into his NBA career for anyone to mistake him for Spencer Hawes. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to agree with you. Cody, I think that they might be making a mistake here by continually trying to make Cody into a stretch player, a a, a a potentially a five out player. Um, I think when I look but, at his, but I think it goes back to what you said that I think it it reflects not only a, a different vision for how the player should develop, but a different vision on what they think the player can be. Because I think if you're Cody and you think. I've got to add, if I'm going to be a center, a starting center, then I've got to add strength so that I can go up against uh, other starting centers. But if you believe that 
Cody is going to be more cannot really be an impact player as a starting center and would probably be best served coming off the bench, then you think, okay, he's got to add a three-point shot. Well, but again, I asked Rich, they see him as a starting center. And, you know, it's, to me, Cody Zeller is still in a position in his life. He's young enough. Keep in mind, he's the same high school graduating class as Kaminsky. Um, He's young enough. He's got the right body type and the right athleticism level. I personally would, would rather see him develop into... Andrew Bogut, um, and that kind of player, a, a player who s- does what Bogut does for the Warriors, which is sets hard screens all the time. Which he did in the playoffs. And then rolls to the basket, and very occasionally will, will actually, you know, they'll actually maybe run a play for him, but almost never. I think that Cody could thrive in that kind of role if he learns, number one, rim protection techniques, because he certainly has the athleticism. Uh, let's keep in mind this guy has like a 38-inch vertical. And better and, and, and better understands how well you have to be stronger to set better screens and you have to learn how to roll at the highest level. And I don't think he quite has that yet. So there's a I mean, I I certainly am not portraying myself as knowing more about basketball than Clifford or Cho, but I sort of disagree with their vision if they believe Cody Zeller is the starting center having him focus on three-point shooting instead of focusing on what the modern center does in a four-out offense where the center is the one in, uh, to me could potentially you know, lead to a, I don't want to say a wasted offseason, but if the guy can't shoot 35% on threes, then you don't really want him taking threes. Um, if, he, if he can be that great pick-and-roll center, that could have huge value to a team that has three shooters surrounding the surrounding the perimeter along with the pick and roll pair uh let's move on to al jefferson because when and how they could utilize him at the center position dictated a lot of the team's style and strategy this season he probably had the most um eventful year of any charlotte hornets player there was obviously the the weight loss storyline before the season injuries uh, to his calf uh, suspensions, constantly changing role on the team. Let's start at the beginning of the year. Al Jefferson seemed to understand the team was moving away from his style of play somewhat. Did they not? He seemed to have an understanding. Of yeah. That. Um, before the season, I had a 20-minute talk with Al about the future of the NBA and the future of him and just everything about basketball. And um he understood where where they were going. He understood where he understands where the NBA is going. He doesn't like it necessarily, but um, which you can understand. But Al clearly showed he has some value. Uh, you know, in that series against the the Heat, he was huge against Whiteside um, because Whiteside doesn't really know how to defend a guy like that. The flip side is, I tend to think that Al's future is coming off the bench for any team he ends up on. I do not really think that any team would be smart to start Al Jefferson. I think the his best role is going to be as your number one scorer off the bench, and he did that really well for most of the season for the Hornets, and I would be surprised if they were even, as, as I said, Rich Cho gave a definitive yes, I see Cody Zeller as a starting center, which means if we bring back Al, we don't see him as a starting center. Mm-hmm. Um, so Al knows that. I'm sure, or at least he heard that and maybe was a little surprised. But 
that's the reality for Al. He he's he's a great post up center, which can have a lot of value off the bench. It does not. It it, it will clog things up when you have your f- other four most talented players on the court with him, and that's that's what that's the reason essentially that you don't want him as your starting center is because he'll actually do better when he's surrounded by less talented players because he can be the focal point of the offense. He came back after the All-Star break after, again, injuring his calf and then being suspended and coming back briefly and getting uh, re-injured. But he came back after the All-Star break to that bench role. Were you surprised at how easily he transitioned to the bench after starting um, most of his prime career? Not really. Um Again, the other factor, along with the fact that he was not on the court with as many talented players, you know, not being on the court consistently with Kemba Batum and Marvin and uh, Courtney Lee meant that there were more shots available for him. But on top of that, he he fits the bill of what a post-up bench player can do, which earlier this season, Seth Partnow from uh, Nylon, Nylon Calculus, Calculus wrote a, a pretty good article. Actually, it was for the Washington Post. He wrote a, a very good article about the impact of low post scoring off the bench and against second units. Second units just don't have anyone who can defend. Most second units, it's sort of the... The Heat were sort of the opposite because the Heat started Whiteside and were, and late in the series were bringing Haslam off the bench. And Haslam's a much better post defender than, than, than Whiteside. But most teams have a really good defensive center as, as their starter. Most teams focus on that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're playing the Warriors, and you've got Bogut starting and Spates off the bench. And you, if, if you're Al, who are you going to score easily against? Well, Spates. You know, for most teams, a low post center is going to be more effective because off the bench because they're facing second units that just don't have the size or the ability to to match up against them. And so... Again, I really just believe I believe Al can be a very effective player for another three or four years at least, but I think it's going to be off the bench. The pro- I think the problem is that off the bench, other teams can counter with faster, quicker pick-and-roll schemes and, and get smaller and um, exploit some of his weaknesses on the defensive end. I think that's what Miami— that's, That happens in the starting lineups too. Yeah. Um I just think it's easier to to mismatch on the defensive end from a from a second unit perspective than with your first unit. You're pretty locked into that at least in the regular season, and then you know all bets are off in in the playoffs. But it will be interesting to see uh, how that develops. And uh, before the season started, Al Jefferson said, and this was in a, an article that that you wrote for the Sporting News or for Sporting News, excuse me. I think people don't realize three point shooting is what makes me who I am. And to me, that was never more apparent than in that first-round series versus Miami because Miami did everything they could to shut down the three-point shooting, and it put the focus on Al Jeff- It's It's kind of funny because when I take a look at that quote, I think people don't realize three-point shooting is what makes me who I am. I think, and probably what the spirit behind that was, was that if the team is better at shooting the three, then it opens up things for me. But in the playoffs, it was kind of the opposite. The team struggled to shoot three-pointers specifically because Miami did things to take that away, and it opened up things for Al Jefferson. It's it's funny because these players are being you know sort of exercised from the NBA slowly, but you can't single cover Zach Randolph. You can't single cover Al Jefferson. You can't single cover DeMarcus Cousins. 
in the post. You can't do it. Um, maybe there are maybe five players in the league who can who can handle them one on one. But we saw with Whiteside a the the third place finisher and defensive player of the year, the best shot blocker in the league by a wide margin. He could not cover Al Jefferson in the post. That's the the Heat were really really hoping that Hassan Whiteside, being a much bigger, more athletic, younger, better player than than Al, that oh he can he can handle him and we'll stick to our men on, on and not get burned on threes. And instead, Al just cooked and you know pump faked his way around Whiteside, fouled him out in in game six. That was. Um, the most important game in the series by far. Yeah, but uh, you know, yes, they lost, but they they had a huge comeback largely because Al kept basically taking Whiteside off the court, and um, that's where that's where Al is is going to continue to be valuable for whatever team he ends up on. I don't know if he's going to be willing to take the kind of price cut that the Hornets want. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate in that series that. I think you saw some of the endurance issues that he had because of some of the injuries that set back his season time and time again. And I think some people commented that Hassan Whiteside had started to figure out Al Jefferson by the end of that series and at least not send him to the free throw line as often, maybe not necessarily stop his offense, but stop him from affecting the game so so much. But really, I looked at it and saw a guy who just couldn't stay on the floor long enough right. and, and, and long enough stretches. So. Right. But he did have an impact on the on the series. I, I want to talk about MKG briefly as well because the seven games that he returned gave a, a much different picture, a much uh, a window into a much different team than we saw for uh, uh, most of the other. It's going to test my math here. Seventy five games of the season, um, and and definitely in the playoffs as well. But when you look at the when you look back at those seven games, what does it tell you about how the Hornets will try to re-implement him into this team well first of all i want to say it was kind of um sad that almost all those games were on the road if not all those games it was like during a road stretch that he came mm-hmm. back west coast swing so i didn't get a chance i don't believe i think i saw him play in person once this year which was uh not what i was hoping because i love michael kid gilchrist and i will say i Another thing I disagree with Rich Cho and Steve Clifford about is I think that he has more, and I think he showed it, I think he has more offensive potential than they give him credit for, mm-hmm. at least publicly. Um, you know, They have been very clear that they don't ever see him being a major impact player offensively, which is interesting. Um, that I don't believe he's a go-to scorer, but what we saw when he was on the court was he was leading the pick and roll. He was the ball handler. With Batum and Kemba on the court, they were running the wings, and MKG was running the offense on numerous possessions, particularly in that game against the Lakers. I still remember it well because it was exciting, and it gave you a glimpse of, wow, this guy's back, and this guy, this team is so much better with him. He's not only the toughest player on the team, not only the best defender on the team, but he has great court vision and ball handling skills that make up for his lack of shooting. And that allows him... Four out is kind of a misnomer. It doesn't mean you necessarily have four players who can shoot. It means you have, you're have in the NBA, in the modern NBA, you're probably running a pick and roll of some sort. Those two players don't count. The other three players have to shoot. So when MKG and Cody Zeller were running a pick and roll, it was important that the other three players be able to hit their threes. Mm-hmm. 
Now, it's a bonus if it's MKG and Frank Kaminsky running that pick and roll and Kaminsky pops out for a three. But and and then that's where they could be going with Cody is they want him to be not only a pick and roll player but a pick and pop player. MKG has the potential to be that lead ball handler in a lot of situations. Not full time cuz Kemba's still going to do it full like Kemba's still going to be the number 1 ball handler, but we saw the potential that MKG has the feel for the game, the passing ability and the ball handling ability to run that pick and roll and be a much more effective offensive player than we've ever seen him. Well, and the thing is, what what defenders were starting to understand, and I think they would have fully understood had MKG been able to stay on the floor, is that you can't sag too far off of him because if if you give him a running head start towards the rim, he's normally going to finish that. Because he's so athletic. He's extremely athletic, and he was... In, in several instances, he was an off-ball role man. He was able to do something that n- even Nick Batum couldn't, which is roll with Kimba in, in either a pick-and-roll situation or just Kimba taking his man one-on-one, and Kimba found him on, on numerous occasions. And the scary thing that he showed a full knack for even the past two years before this one um, is that guy will find the crack in your defense, make you forget he exists, and just like like Nightcrawler just appear at the rim. And either grab grab an offensive rebound for a putback, or get a alley oop thrown to him, or or a bounce pass in the mid, through the middle of the lane, and you didn't even see him. And the next thing you know, he's got a dunk or a layup. And he he showed that ability. That was kind of how he got <laughs> seemingly almost all his points when he was healthy two years ago. Uh, this season, he added that ball handling ability, that 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 confidence to lead the pick and roll, and. If he ever adds a jump shot, I mean, we, I'm not, I don't believe he can be as good offensively as Kawhi Leonard, which is not, um, you know, that's, that'd be crazy. But <laughs> I believe he could be a sim, he reminds me, his developmental pattern reminds me quite a bit of Kawhi, except with horrible injuries getting in the way. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's obviously going to delay him. Having shoulder injuries probably means he, on top of the fact that he just was never naturally a good shooter, he probably will never develop into the, the shooter that Kawhi has certainly developed into. But other elements of his game are similar. And Kawhi has that same innate ability to just find the hole in the defense. And, uh, you know, MKG, I don't want to get too hyped about seven games, but those were seven of the best games the Hornets played. Well, there could, I think there's a distinction. I think there could be a great article written about the distinction between a great shooter and a great shot maker. Because I think MKG will, ne- I agree with you, I don't think he'll ever be the shooter that Kawhi has developed into, but he was starting to show in those seven games this ability to back down his guy one-on-one and, and hit a turnaround jumper. And if you can uh, pair the turnaround jumper with the slashing, with the occasional three, then you, you can get to 15 to 20 a night and be an elite shot maker. Right. And that's what the Hornets could use. So yeah, I, I think the great thing about MKG is what made that Miami team great in that first round series is that it's versatility. It's being able to plug him in into any situation and make it work because he's a smart enough player to know, okay, recognize, okay, I'm playing with A, B, C, D. What does my game need to be right now? And so it, it will be very interesting to see him. Uh, uh, play now. Let's 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 shift gears. I genuinely, uh, yeah. I want to add one thing. I genuinely believe, and I'll say it on the air. Um, <laughs> Michael Kidd Gilchrist is the best player on the Hornets. I, I mean, I I think 
that if if you watch those seven games closely and if you've paid attention to his development, that that would be hard to argue against. And that says a lot because we we saw the leap that Kimball Walker made this year, and we'll talk more in depth about uh, with Nada Edwards, but. We saw the leap that Kimba made, and yet still, when you go back and watch those seven games, he's just so incredibly dynamic, and he's always the most energetic person on the court offensively or defensively, and he's he is a difference maker if he can stay on the court, and that will be one of the biggest question marks heading into uh, 2016-17. Uh, let's reflect now that we are done with the season. That's what this whole show is about, season wrap. We're reflecting. The Hornets are going to reflect. They're going to try to refine what they did this season and make it try to either replicate it or make it somewhat better. What do you think they will look to acquire based on the shortcomings that they had to end this year? Do you think they'll change the strategy at all, the, 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 the gonna, approach? I think they're going to um, have a bit of a wake-up call when they you know go and pay Nick Batum, which they almost certainly will do. And then realize that Marvin Williams is getting a lot more than they realized. Jeremy Lin's going to get a lot more than they realized. And they're going to have to make some changes. And I, I, I believe that they're not going to have the option to not make those changes because there's a, a billion dollars to be spent in the NBA this offseason. And a player like Marvin Williams has immense value to every team in this league. And while I'm not specifically saying Marvin's gone, I'm going to say they're going to lose more than I think people would like to see them lose and I don't think Batum will be one of those pieces so the big thing I would say they need to find is um they need to replace whoever goes because if it's is it is Marvin that's he's not an easy person to replace mm-hmm. they need to make a decision if, if MKG could be a power forward um full time but if Marvin goes but the other thing that they need to do for sure is get some toughness, get some strength. And that could be Cody adding some strength and some bulk. It could be Kaminsky adding some strength and some bulk. And But clearly they got embarrassed in Game 7. Yeah, I think that was what I was going to ask. Is I think if you look back on this past offseason and you evaluate it based on the, the performances in the regular season and in the playoffs, you, you have to look at it and go, okay, they added a ton of skill, a ton of shooting, which are two things that this team has not had in, in many years. But they weren't able to acquire physicality, toughness, and and maybe versatility, sort of two-way play. One of the interesting things about that is that they still had a great defensive rebound percentage in the regular season, one of the best in the league. So they're still mostly doing their job boxing out. But what we saw was in the playoffs, everyone gets more physical, Mm -hmm. and you can't afford to be a soft team. So do you think in the offseason they'll look to create – because it seemed like they created a really great regular season team last season. Do you think that they'll take these lessons and one one to two players? That's all they have to do. Yeah. You know, even honestly, I couldn't believe that they didn't turn to Tyler Hansbrough earlier in game seven in particular. I mean, that guy's just a wrecking ball. Nothing else. Uh they had him on the bench and they didn't really use him. Um I don't think he'll be back because he didn't play very much. But the they're going to have to find one player at least, and, and it, it very well could be Michael Kidd Gilchrist, who helps them up their edge for the playoff mentality. And then on top of that, like you said, they're probably Lynn's probably gone, and they're 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 probably going to have to replace him, and it's not going to be easy um, to find a player who can play both point guard and shooting guard in an off season where there's just no free agent point guards. 
So that's going to be a challenge. It's going to be really – it's a potential step back year. It, it, it very, it, they won 48 games this year, but a lot of players had career seasons. Even if they bring everyone back, 48 wins is really good. And, you know, I'm optimistic about the fact that MKG's returning, but who knows how long he'll play. Um, it This is not necessarily, you know, an easy season to replicate. And I don't think that Hornets fans should get the sense that, okay, next season we got to win 55 games or it's not a success. Mm-hmm.